Happy Friday, folks. Senior Editor Mackenzie Taylor here on the Texans Weekly Roundup Podcast. This week, the team discusses Dan Patrick's response to his Democratic opponent's endorsement from a Republican judge. BlackRock relaxing its investment policy in response to state investigation. Veterans Affairs expanding abortion access, even in states with laws against abortion. The end of the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board. E-cigarette manufacturer Jules, multi-million dollar payout to the state. The Biden administration's final rule to preserve DACA. Back and forth over Texas law mandating donated In God We Trust signs displayed in public schools. The expectations and recommendations for the Texas power grid. Texas starting to bus illegal immigrants to Chicago. And former NFL quarterback Tim Tebow speaking at an Andrews County event costing $60,000. As always, if you have questions for our team, DM us on Twitter or email us at editor at thetexan.news. We'd love to answer your questions on a future podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Well, howdy, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here with Hudson and Hayden. Rob will join us later, most likely. And Brad is joining us from Ohio. So we will be um, kind of doing a tag team effort here today, Hayden. I'm a little jealous of Poncho. He's just going to town on this <laughs> fake plastic bone right what? here next to me. Not a care in the world. I feel bad. I hit him with the, my car door today. <laughs> He's a very small dog. So I'm sure the damage he incurred is far more than I could understand as a 15 pound dog. He doesn't seem too upset. I think, so. I think he'll be fine. Well, gentlemen, let's go ahead and start by getting into the news. Hayden, we're going to start with you. Um, there were some waves made over Labor Day weekend as um, a North Texas Republican caused a stir and endorsed Democrat Mike Collier for lieutenant governor. What was Republican incumbent Dan Patrick's response? It's always a headline when someone crosses party lines and decides to really be disloyal to their party and people will characterize that in different ways. Some will say it's principled and that he's making a policy oriented choice. Others will say that it's uh, betraying the voters, uh, the primary voters that put him in office and both Republicans and Democrats do this at times. But to give a set the stage for who it is that has made this endorsement, this is the Tarrant County judge. And for those unfamiliar with county judges, they are more or less the chief executive of a county. This is the largest or most populated Republican-controlled county in Texas. So County Judge Glenn Whitley endorsing Democratic Lieutenant Governor nominee Mike Collier was a big deal. And Whitley has a history of quarreling with fellow Republicans, so it's not new for him to upset those within his own party. But it is news that uh, Whitley chose to Make a very uh, uh, take a very contrary stance to those in his party. He made the endorsement in a podcast on WFAA, a local news outlet in the DFW area, and there was some fallout that included Senator Kel Seliger out in Amarillo, um, also making an endorsement of Collier, and then shortly after, Democrat Senator Eddie Lucio endorsed. Dan Patrick. So there were senators in both parties crossing their uh, endorsing outside of their party and uh, lots of commentary on those endorsements. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that Judge Whitley had sparred potentially with Republicans in the past. Talk to us specifically about a property tax fight that he had with some state level officials. 
Well, I uh, forgot to mention that Dan Patrick uh, did respond to those endorsements or to Whitley in particular. Uh, He focused his criticism on property taxes there in Tarrant County. He said there was uh, there are higher property taxes in Tarrant County than uh, in most other places in the state. Patrick said, quote, it's no surprise Whitley, who made Tarrant County property taxes among the highest in Texas, doesn't get it. People are being taxed out of their homes by big spending local governments. Collier and Whitley are two of a kind tax hiking big spenders, end quote. And uh, Tarrant County did collect $529 million in property taxes in 2021, according to the Texas Controller of Public Accounts. And uh, the tax rate was... uh, 20 or 22.9 cents per $100 of assessed valuation. So those are the property tax rates in Tarrant County, and that was Patrick's focus. But county tax rates are set by the commissioner's courts in the various counties, and the hospital district tax rates are set there as well. Judge Whitley in the past has blamed the legislature for increasing property taxes, and he, in fact, stated at, during the budget talks in 2018, that the legislature had mandated a property tax increase, which drew the ire of the Republican Senate delegation there in Tarrant County. And a public letter was authored by uh, Senators Brian Birdwell, Jane Nelson, Kelly Hancock, and our very own Connie Burton, full disclosure. See, <laughs> she is CEO here, but at the time she was in the Senate and she signed on to this letter accusing Whitley of misleading the public about uh, the nature of property taxation and reminding everyone that it's the commissioner's courts that sets those taxes. Uh, while Whitley was contending that the state had more or less backed him into a corner, and by making these plans around a certain tax rate uh, at the county level, that uh, they were uh, really foreshadowing the um, not just foreshadowing, but cajoling the county into doing the same thing, even though they do have the final word. On uh, on the property tax rate, the legislature sometimes will make plans around the county doing a certain thing, even though they're not required to do that. So Whitley has sparred with these lawmakers in the past over property taxes and uh, doing the same thing again here with uh, Patrick, even though he uh, he cited uh, Mike Collier's business experience. And Whitley said that he has more respect for local officials than Patrick does. Very interesting. And to watch, and particularly in Tarrant County, as you said, where the stakes are very high for Republicans and Democrats. Democrats view this as a huge win for them if they were to secure countywide elections in that in, in Tarrant, just because of the history and, and it being so red previously. Um, so interesting to watch this go on, particularly in the in this cycle. Is this a competitive race or uh, does Patrick more or less have this locked up? Patrick has a lead in the polls, and he has millions more in the bank for his campaign. So it's not a lock for Patrick at all. He Last time he was uh, finished five points ahead of Collier, although it's likely Patrick will win. Uh, he still has a lot of um, campaigning to do, and Collier is hoping to appeal to moderate Republicans. He's running radio ads, even in rural areas. So it's still a couple of months away from the election, but um, it is a competitive race. But 
Patrick does have um, a huge advantage. There you go. Well, Hayden, thank you for covering that for us. Bradley, we are going to come to you. BlackRock is in the news again, and the most recent step in a back and forth between the financial titan and Texas officials occurred this week. What happened? So BlackRock, the world's largest portfolio manager, sent a response to a collection of state attorneys general, including Texas AG Ken Paxton, who are investigating their company over its ESG-related statements. BlackRock objected to the contentions made by the AGs, namely that they divest from fossil fuel companies or sanction those fossil fuel companies to the point of spurning away investments that would otherwise go to them. BlackRock has repeatedly denied such allegations, but the most notable part of the letter is that the company says now pension systems may vote their shares differently than BlackRock recommends to its clients. Normally, BlackRock proxy votes on behalf of its clients uh, in the shareholders' meetings of each respective company where they see a lot of these different kinds of proposals come up. Yeah, absolutely. So this response comes after the state comptroller put BlackRock on its list of fossil fuel divestors. Where does that stand? After publishing of that list, uh, 10 companies, including BlackRock, uh, are on it. Um, state pension funds have begun the process of figuring out just how much money they have tied to those companies through stock holdings and portfolio investments. They have 30 days to do that. The deadline, uh, 30 days after the list is released, and the deadline is September 23rd, at which point these state entities will begin to pull the money out of those companies, including BlackRock. And as of the beginning of this year, the state's largest pension system, teachers' retirement system, had about $7.5 billion tied to BlackRock managed funds and BlackRock stock holdings. So uh, that's the largest tranche that you'll see, but that's one of five or six different state pension systems. And so you will see a lot of money uh, change hands in this in this situation. Um, I'm not sure how quickly after that 30 days that they will get all of the money out, but um, it, is, it is definitely something that the state including Texas Comptroller Glenn Hager, is rearing to get get finished. The legislature passed a law last session in 2021 requiring the state to remove, to divest the fossil fuel divestors, essentially, to remove these state pension investments from companies that the state of Texas deems is uh, divesting from uh, the, the fossil fuel industry. Well, Brad, thank you for covering that for us, and we'll keep an eye on those developments going forward. We appreciate your coverage. Hudson, we are coming to you. You wrote a piece this week, or I think it was last week even, um, about the Veterans Affairs expanding abortion access, even in states with laws that restrict abortion access. What is the VA doing here? Yeah, so the VA is following suit to a number of other federal agencies like the Health and Human Services Department and the Department of Defense. Um, They are all trying to expand abortion access beyond the current state restrictions. And the VA is doing this through a rule that they issued last Friday that claims that they can provide abortions in cases of rape or incest in medical emergencies. Now, all VA beneficiaries will have access to expanded uh, abortion services in comparison to states with incredibly strict laws like Texas. What legal foundation do they cite? 
Yeah, so they cite the uh, the Veterans Healthcare Eligibility Reform Act, um, which ex- established healthcare benefits for VA beneficiaries, and that allows the secretary to furnish hospital care and medical services, which the secretary determines to be needed. Um, and so, in this circumstance, the VA claims that abortions fall in the, under the purview of this law. Have any Texas lawmakers responded to this rule? You know, not yet. Um, I've been looking for for a response from from even a state lawmaker, but I haven't been able to find much of anything responding to this specific rule. Um, notably, the uh, Paxton Ken Paxton was incredibly vocal about the health and human services, similar health and human services rule, and it was actually um, enjoined. The guidance from uh, Secretary Xavier Becerra was. Uh, was enjoined from being uh, put into place in Texas, saying that it wasn't constitutional um, under under Texas law. But this is the Veterans Affairs, and we really haven't seen anything from Texas lawmakers. U.S. Senator from from Kansas, Jerry Moran, has been incredibly opposed to the rule, but still have no word from Corn and Cruz or other Texas actors. Who will be impacted by this rule? Yeah, so this will affect over 2.5 million women across the country and represents a notable blow to state laws that just went into effect restricting abortion to instances where the life of the mother will be directly threatened. Um, Because the VA gives physicians the ability to determine whether or not the woman in question requires an emergency abortion, it will surely expand the instances where the practice will be legal. Very interesting to watch this happen and kind of trickle down on the federal level. Thank you for covering that, Hudson. Hayden, um, Secretary Mayorkas announced a panel called the Disinformation Governance Board, and it caused quite a stir, but recently decided to shut it down. What spurred his change of mind? Several months ago, Secretary Mayorkas said that there would be a panel that would be responsible for sifting disinformation, primarily spread by bad actors like foreign adversaries and criminal uh, cartels, criminal organizations spreading misinformation. He cited um, the surge on Del Rio, the illegal immigration surge, as uh, proof that something needed to be done because there was misinformation about the status of Haitian illegal immigrants here in the U.S. So he formed this panel that was ostensibly to uh, spread or to uh, clamp down on falsehoods being spread uh, by foreign adversaries. Uh, But there were, uh, it was roundly criticized and he recently uh, determined that the board would be closed. Uh, He published a statement on August 24th indicating that he accepted the recommendation of the Homeland Security Advisory Council and uh, terminated the board that same day. So Hayden, talk to us about what were some of the main objections to the Disinformation Governance Board? The critics of the board pointed out the timing of the formation of the board, which was right after Elon Musk announced that he would take over or that he would purchase Twitter. And many believed that Musk was going to relax a lot of the rules around content and information about the election and different things that might otherwise be quote unquote fact checked by Twitter or have that little flag that says, This claim is misleading or whatever comes after the exclamation point that they add to tweets that they don't like. And the critics of the board said that it would have a chilling effect on free speech, even if it did not indeed censor or monitor Americans. It would give the impression that the government was monitoring people and that 
expressing opinions that were unpopular with the fed the federal government could be um could result in repercussions and there was a lawsuit including texas that uh, sought to shut down the board obviously that lawsuit is now moot because the board has been dissolved by secretary mayorkas but the leader of the board was uh, an outspoken critic of president trump and many believed also that she was too politically charged to lead an agency that was responsible for being an objective gatekeeper of facts. Well, I believe the the name itself caused quite a stir among folks too, particularly in the you know this political climate we live in, where the right of center folks are very concerned about censorship and those kinds of issues. I think the name sparked a lot of outrage among folks for sure. Well, Hayden, thank you for covering that for us. Bradley, we're coming back to you. The Texas Attorney General announced a large settlement with e-cigarette manufacturer Juul this week. Tell us the details. So the settlement is a result of a two-year-long lawsuit. Um, Juul, the e-cigarette manufacturer, one of the the most known of these, uh, agreed to pay $438.5 million dollars in settlement to over 30 states and territories, 42.8 million of which will go to Texas. A number of state attorneys general sued the company over its marketing strategies and tactics aimed at specifically selling to young people. I believe uh, Ken Paxton, Texas attorney general, was, uh, if not the first, one of the first to file this lawsuit back in 2020. Um, according to the Office of the Attorney General, the broad investigation revealed that Jewel was guilty of these practices uh, with specifically uh, using launch parties, advertisements, using young models, social media posts, and providing free samples uh, to prospective consumers, uh, alleging that that is how they um, attracted the consumer base of um, essentially 25 and under, uh, but specifically talking about um, people under the age of 18. What did the company say about it? They said, quote, this, this settlement with 34 states and territories is a significant part of our ongoing commitment to resolve issues from the past. The terms of the agreement are aligned with our current business practices, which we started to implement after our company-wide reset in the fall of 2019. We remain focused on the future as we work to fulfill our mission to transition adult smokers away from cigarettes, the number one cause of preventable death while combating underage use. That's that lays out an interesting dynamic with this. Um, you know, these e-cigarettes are very popular among younger people, uh, in large part because they are less damaging. Um, uh, at least in the traditional sense that cigarettes are then cigarettes. Uh, one of the ways that that uh, the these attorney general attorneys general um, knocked Juul for was that the chemical compound that they use in this vape is lighter on the throat of these uh, of the users, and therefore um, it, it's easier to to smoke, and that. Uh, that moves that is not the case for cigarettes and therefore you see a lot of um, younger people using the vapes and so um, it's an odd dynamic of this company trying to provide a 
a different uh, a different way for people to uh, get a nicotine fix, essentially, um, but also being uh, being criticized for the way they're doing it uh, and trying making a lot of money while doing it, but also um, one of the the things they got um, knocked for on this was that they weren't incredibly forthright about the fact that it does contain nicotine and it is addictive. And so um, it seems like Juul is in a, as they say, a company-wide reset trying to change the way they are doing business. And uh, this settlement is part of that. Well, thank you, Bradley, for covering that for us. Hayden, um, let's talk to you about some border-related issues here, some immigration-related issues. The Obama-era DACA program is back in the news after Biden officials published rules for those already in the program. What are some of the highlights of the rule? The DACA program was instituted by then-DHS Secretary Janet Napolitano and was designed to allow people who came to the U.S. as children illegally to remain in the country so that they, as the argument goes, are not punished for something that was no fault of their own, that they came here as children and could not, uh, as a five or six-year-old, couldn't file their own legal paperwork and uh, be admitted to the country legally. So these are people who were given uh, two-week, excuse me, two-year work permits, and they, according to the DHS, 800,000 people have been allowed to stay in the U.S. under the program. They're more or less protected from deportation. There have been wildly different estimates of how many people have been affected by DACA. They're also called DREAMers, people in this program. But after Obama left office, it became a target for the Trump administration. And recently, Biden officials published guidelines to extend the protections of DACA. It's materially the same as the original DACA program. It seeks to make those permanent. So uh, some of what they outlined, for instance, they said, quote, maintains the existing threshold criteria for DACA, retains the existing process for DACA requesters to seek work authorization, and affirms the longstanding policy that DACA is not a form of lawful status, but that DACA recipients, like other deferred action recipients, are considered lawfully present for certain purposes, end quote. So it keeps the bones of it the same, but is seeking a permanent solution so that these individuals are not in limbo. What are some of the legal perils facing the DACA program? The backdrop of this new rule is the legal challenge to DACA that culminated last year in a state, excuse me, a federal judge blocking new applications to the program, but allowing those already in the program to renew their status under the program. I believe he blocked it under the Administrative Procedure Act. He said that it was an improper uh, executive memoranda. Again, this isn't a law. It's not a court ruling. It is a piece of paper that somebody in the Obama administration signed. And um, uh, often what is cited in these cases is prosecutorial discretion. They're uh, using their discretion as federal officials not to prosecute people who came here uh, when they were children, and to to not uh, prioritize them to to be expelled, but the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals recently heard oral arguments in the case and is expected to make a decision in the near future. Biden's publication of these new guidelines is his attempt to bolster their case in court and hopefully satisfy the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is typically more conservative 
so that they do not strike down this program that is very important to liberals. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Hayden, thank you for that. Hudson, we're coming back to you. There's been a lot of hubbub about in God we trust signs displayed in public schools. Um, What developments have occurred since we discussed this story last? Yeah, so this has been an interesting uh, thing to to look at and, and just from the back and forth between the, the different sides here. But um, essentially, just a little bit of background. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Patriot Mobile, who call themselves America's only Christian conservative wireless provider, donated a bunch of signs with the national motto, In God We Trust, to Texas public schools. Um, so those donations came on the heel of a bill authored by state rep Brian Hughes that mandates that that signs with the motto, a Texas flag and American flag are, if they are donated to the school, they must be displayed in a prominent location on campus. Um, and so last week, a parent from Carroll ISD attempted to donate new In God We Trust signs uh, that have Arabic lettering and rainbow lettering. Um, and so his signs were subsequently rejected, and the school board president claimed that they only needed one sign per school and that they can't accept more, and that that was the reason for them not accepting um, accepting the signs. And the parent responded saying, uh, why is more God not better? This is very interesting. Yeah, interesting argument. I've not heard that one before. <laughs> what happened after the signs were rejected? Yeah, so last Friday, the Kaplan Law Firm, a, a, a civil rights firm in Austin, gave the Carroll resident who had the signs rejected and three other parents cease and desist letters to deliver to four North Texas schools with the Patriot mobile signs on display. So those cease and desist letters claim that the current signs were out of line with the law because of extraneous images in the background of the poster. The poster did have extra stars in the background in addition to the Texas flag and American flag, which were required and the motto, which were required by the law. So these stars supposedly violated the aspect of the law that says that outside of those required images, no other words or images may be present on the poster. So the parents also brought the Arabic and rainbow signs with the cease and desist letters that were initially rejected as the law firm claimed that these signs were indeed in line with the text of the law. So Senator Brian Hughes, uh, did he respond to the cease and desist order? No, he did not respond directly to the cease and desist order, but earlier last week he did uh, pen a letter to Texas Education Agency Commissioner Mike Morath, and cl- he clarified the intent of the law um, because of these attempts to donate signs in Arabic and other other ways to to find loopholes in the in the law. So Hughes, and he was the author of the law, correct? Yes, okay. Yes. And so Hughes confirmed that only one sign is required per school, um, similar to what the 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 uh, the Carroll ISD school board president told the parent, and that more would overwhelm the school system. And additionally, he told Marath that the signs must be in English as the 1956 law that established the motto specified English as the language. Got it. Well, Hudson, thank you for that update. Bradley, we are coming back to you over in Ohio. A couple of power grid related reports were released this week right up your alley. What did they say? So the first was ERCOT's fall seasonal assessment, a forecast of expected electricity demand and generation levels. Uh, It shows a much lighter load during October and November for the power grid to bear, which is unsurprising as the summer heat will likely relent. Typically in Texas, the most strenuous time on the power grid is the dead of summer. Uh, The grid operator plans to use this time to allow for plant maintenance, maintenance that had to be postponed to cope with the demand caused by the summer heat. 
many of these generators um, kept themselves online when they had scheduled maintenance plans uh, during the summer because of the sheer amounts of, of electricity needed to cope with how much people were using. Uh, the second report was the final report of the Energy Plan Advisory Committee, a body created by the legislature to conduct a full-scope review of the energy and power industry. I go into much more detail in the piece on it, so if you're interested um, at, on that, I recommend reading it. But the report focused greatly on how to cope with the massive shift in Texas, uh, specifically what it's seeing in its generation sources. Large amounts of wind and solar are coming online, while no new natural gas or coal facilities are expected to be built. On a side note, I did hear Governor Abbott on a, a podcast today with uh, Chris Salcedo say that when he was asked if, uh, if the governor would confirm that the state of Texas would add new natural gas generation facilities, the governor said 100% yes. Uh, to my knowledge, there aren't any. Uh, any new um, uh, generating generation plants, natural gas plants in the works, um, seeking permitting at the moment, but that is something that state officials are hoping to change direction on. Uh, also in the report, they made a couple of recommendations about changes to both the physical and the market side of things on the power grid. Uh, one thing that's notable is um, specifying the generators, renewable generators should have on-site dispatchable generation as backup. Essentially, that would require uh, wind farms and solar farms to have, let's say, natural gas or coal on-site as a backup generator in case they cannot meet their obligations. We saw during the summer quite a bit of these, um, of, of these sources not meet their forecasted amount of generation for various reasons, whether it was the wind not blowing or uh, there be, it being an exceptionally cloudy day in West Texas, limiting the amount of solar that could be generated. So we are, we, yeah, they, they released this report. It was part of the post-blackout reforms. Uh, this had been in the works for a long time, like at least a year probably. And they did a lot of, they held a couple hearings. They talked to a lot of different um, different stakeholders. The report is linked in the article there. You can read it for yourself if you want. Um, but that's that's a broad it's a broad assessment of what happened and rec providing recommendations for what should come next. So what is next? We are still waiting on the final plan of market reforms from the Public Utility Commission. Uh, but the most important thing to watch for is how the commission decides to adjust the status quo in the market to cope with the large amounts of renewable subsidies that, quote, distort the market. You have these federal tax subsidies, uh, most notably the, the production tax credit at the federal level level that just got renewed by, by Congress, um, that basically allows these renewable generators to sell electricity at negative prices and still break even. Um, if you're receiving a lot of money in subsidization, you don't have to sell as much. You don't have to uh, sell your electricity, whatever or your product, whatever it is for very much. And that gives you a competitive advantage in a market such as the ERCOT market. And so 
That has been probably the biggest component to the massive influx of renewable generation that we're seeing at the expense of um, natural gas and coal and other thermal generation that we have not seen any development in. In fact, we're losing uh, capacity in that as some very old plants uh, get mothballed. Yeah. Well, Brad, thank you for uh, kind of breaking that all down for us and we'll see what happens. But now that the summer's over, I think, you know, probably a lot of those, you know, grid regulators are very much breathing a sigh of relief. So we'll see how the winter fares. But thank you for that so much. And we will continue to keep an eye on what's going on. Hayden, um, we're going to come to you. Governor Abbott uh, added another city to the list of destinations for illegal immigrants transported out of state. Tell us about Chicago's addition to the busing program. For those unfamiliar, the busing program that Abbott started in April provides voluntary transportation to illegal immigrants who are apprehended and then given uh, federal documents. So just to clarify, uh, these are individuals are usually called migrants in these news releases. They were originally illegal immigrants. They were arrested and then given federal documents. So they're technically not illegal immigrants, but like we were talking about with the DACA program earlier they are illegal immigrants in the sense that they've do not have authorization to be here through the legal process they have a piece of paper that gives them permission to be here so they're lawfully present but they have not been legalized in other words it's a form of amnesty but they were apprehended and now the state is taking them and sending them to other cities abbott contends because these cities have sanctuary policies that require them to provide free housing and free clothes, free food, that type of thing. And uh, Texas has sent 7,600 individuals to New York City, or excuse me, to D.C., and 1,900 to New York City. And uh, last week announced that Chicago would be the next city on the list. Uh, Abbott claims that this program is providing much-needed relief to Texas, though it's important to keep in mind that about 118,000 illegal immigrants were apprehended in Texas sectors in July. So uh, that's a uh, compared to about between, I, I saw 60 and then another figure was given of 90 uh, illegal immigrants that were sent to Chicago under the program, uh, under the busing program. Um, so there are a few thousand being sent out of state um, by Abbott's busing program. Got it. So what was the Chicago mayor's response to Abbott's decision? Two very politically different people. The response from the White House and these mayors has obviously been overwhelmingly negative, but uh, this one was particularly strong. Um, while Abbott says that open border policies, as he characterizes them, are putting uh, the state at risk, uh, these Big city mayors believe that it's what he's doing is more or less racially prejudiced. So in a statement, um, the spokesman for Chicago Mayor Lori, Lori Lightfoot said, quote, as a city, we are doing everything we can to ensure these immigrants and their families can receive shelter, food, and most importantly, protection. Uh, Chicago welcomes hundreds of migrants every year. Unfortunately, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is without shame or humanity. But ever since he put these racist practices of expulsion in place, we have been working with our community partners to ready the city to receive these individuals, end quote. Pretty scathing criticism on the part of the mayor of Chicago. 
uh, which uh, who has um uh, we'll say an acrimonious relationship with Greg Abbott. <laughs> Absolutely. Very scathing review there. Hayden, thank you for covering that. Hudson, we're going to come to you. There was a story you wrote and it's it's caught a lot of attention about Tim Tebow speaking at an Andrews County event costing $60,000. Give us some background on the story and why is Tim Tebow coming to Andrews County? Also, where is Andrews County? Somewhere in West Texas. Yes. So Andrews County is a small county on the uh, border of New Mexico in the Permian Basin in West Texas. Um about 20,000 people live there, um, and they announced last week that Tim Tebow um, is going to be coming to town for the price tag of $60,000, um, and that's going to be coming from the county, from the county budget, um, and he's going to be speaking at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes events, uh, event. It is unclear if the p- entire payment will go directly to Tebow or to fund the entire event, but regardless, the constitutionality of a payment for this type of event is ambiguous. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so the the FCA event is called Fields of Faith, and its purpose is to influence students to read the Bible and apply it to their lives. Um, Because the money comes from the public budget, it may violate the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. So the Lemon v. Kurtzman test established that under constitutional law, governments cannot provide direct aid to inherently religious events and cannot directly support the act of proselytizing. So interesting in that there are some questions about specifically where the money is coming from, whether it's taxpayer dollars or what kind of government funds these actually are at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Where is the money pulled from in the Andrews County budget? Yeah, that's the that's the uh, other interesting dimension of this. So, yeah, the the money is not directly coming from tax dollars, which which kind of like increases the, the confusion there about how how legal is something like this. But interestingly, the money comes from payments made to the county by a nuclear waste facility run by waste control specialists. So this facility manages low-level nuclear waste, and the company pays the county about $1 million yearly to operate, and the money goes into something called the Community Legacy Fund. And there is a Community Legacy Committee that is elected from by, by, their, by the peers of the county. Um, and the county uses that money for projects related to the public good. So this is obviously what the county believes is going to be for the public good. And also, it's not often that you can discuss nuclear waste and Tim Tebow in the same story. So it was an interesting <laughs> story to follow. Um, yeah, and definitely got a, got a good amount of traction last week. Yeah, very interesting to watch. Thank you for covering that for us. Let's go to the tweetery section, gentlemen. Bradley, why don't you start us off with something that caught your eye on Twitter this week? So while I was actually boarding the plane to head to Boston to uh, see some games at, at Fenway Park, I saw this email uh, sent out by the Defend Texas Liberty Pack which is run by uh, former state rep Jonathan Stickland. And in it, they are applauding Governor Greg Abbott, which itself for anything is pretty fascinating because I can't remember any time that Stickland or his pack have, uh, have applauded the governor, uh, most notably because they backed the one of the primary challengers for, to Abbott, Don Huffines, pretty uh, substantially. And uh, but in it, they are applauding the governor's statement on using at least half of the projected twenty seven billion dollar treasury surplus uh, that the comptroller put out back in July. Um, 
using at least half of that to provide the most quote most uh, significant property tax cut in the state of Texas history. Uh, the the PAC said in this um, in this release that Abbott was uh, like many Texans. My property tax bill this is Jonathan Sicklin talking went up this year and will be higher than ever. It's encouraging to see our governor not only identify this problem, but be responsive to the voters and come out with this position so swiftly following our poll. Um, another notable aspect of this, that number that Abbott said, which will amount to roughly $13.5 billion, uh, that's more than what both Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick or Speaker Dane Phelan have have suggested for uh, using towards uh, buying down property taxes. Um, something even more politically notable in this is that might signal uh, Abbott's at least tentative support for eliminating the MNO, the maintenance and operations school district rate, which is the single largest component of property tax bills that, that people pay. And so, uh, I'm not sure how that's going to play out, but it's interesting to see that uh, on this issue, especially now that uh, the governor and one of his most ardent critics are on the same page. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's not often I think you see these very conservative or very liberal, depending on which spectrum you're talking about here. But, you know, for this case, we're talking Republicans, you know, come out and give uh, folks who may be more middle of the road than they are kudos. So interesting to watch this alignment on policy happen and then public praise happen as well. And, it's, uh, you know, as you've said, it is no secret that Jonathan Stickland, uh, when he was in the legislature, was not the most uh, not the biggest fan of those in leadership. And so very interesting to watch this press release come out. And I think we all kind of blinked a couple times like, are we reading the names right? <laughs> is this what we're, we're really seeing here? Yeah. So thanks for covering that bradley i appreciate it hayden what caught your eye well we generally try to stay away from stories that are about journalists because reporters tend to talk way too much about themselves but this <laughs> one has a true crime connection so i felt Ooh. like i could um i felt like i could go ahead and, and talk about yeah. it yeah well i've seen like this headline i don't know the details so i'll be learning from you on this one it is pretty shocking. Um, a few days ago, really right before Labor Day, um, a journalist with the Las Vegas Review Journal was found stabbed to death. And the Clark County Public Administrator, Clark County is encompasses Las Vegas, um, was arrested um, on suspicion of murdering this reporter who had written a story that contributed to him losing the Democratic primary for county. Uh, administrator so and wow it is pretty shocking he was as he was arrested um he apparently had some self-inflicted injuries while he was in his house um as he was being arrested and so he was i'm looking at the video right now he was loaded onto a stretcher with a swarm of police officers around him uh loading him into an ambulance Oh my gosh. Very dramatic. So dramatic. So he so he murdered this reporter because uh, why do we know like fully motive in terms of what what Well, because the reporter wrote about the 
By the way, I've only read one. Yeah. I, I've only read what the Las Vegas Review Journal wrote yes. about Which what this, happened. This was their, their reporter, reporter too. That got murdered. Their reporter that got killed. Oh my gosh, that's so awful. <laughs> it is awful. Um, but according to what I read, if I'm understanding correctly, this county administrator had uh, a lot of alleged scandals in his office, and this reporter wrote about all of it. And then, and so he went and and he lost the Democratic primary. And then murdered the reporter who oh my wrote all of it. Absolutely crazy. That takes like another level of insanity to think you'll get away with something like that also. And maybe he did, yeah. but that is just crazy. And it's because it just happened. That makes it so crazy. Like this guy was stabbed to death the other day in Las Vegas. Oh my this gosh. This didn't, didn't happen in in China or Russia. No. a An elected official in Las Vegas, Nevada, murdered a reporter. Oh my gosh. If that is in fact <laughs> what happened. Insane. This is going to be like a Dateline story. Like yeah. there's going to be there's going to be a Netflix special that comes out about this. There's going to be something that comes out that I mean this is this is huge. This is going to be a bigger story and told on a more national level at some point. It's absolutely crazy. Um makes Rob, you think twice about who you write about. I know. Oh my gosh. Well, I <laughs> think about the, that. Not the, I, the workplace hazards for journalists are are very very small like generally um reporters and journalists like to talk like this is a really hazardous job and it isn't this is just a freak thing that happened angry emails yeah (laughs) so don't ever don't ever let a reporter talk to you about how they're you know out there in the battlefield or something unless unless they are unless you're a foreign war correspondent unless you're a foreign war correspondent and you're out there literally reporting on a war this job is less dangerous than most jobs. This is just a freak thing that happens. So before nobody send me emails, I'm not in any way trying to say that make any kind of point with bringing up the story. This is just a weird thing that happened. It's just crazy. Yeah. Just an absolute crazy fluke. Um, well, thank you for breaking that down. I was very curious to know more. So thank you, Hayden. And you know, I always love a good true, true crime story. Um, Hudson, what did you see? So um, going to California, Right now, um, so California this week had a, a seriously uh, crazy like energy environment with their grid because they're having a really bad heat wave, and their their um, their grid is powered by sixty percent renewable energy, and that's often come under fire for not being very reliable, not being available all the time, and something that directly connects to to the state of Texas where. Where like we just like we just said, there's not many plans to build more non-renewable energy uh, in this state for the near future. When we know that that is the most reliable source of energy, um, and so California issued a level three energy conservation, which is the highest level, and essentially saying if people don't turn their power off for long periods of time during the hottest parts of the day, then there's going to be rolling blackouts across the state. And so I saw multiple tweets. Of 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 Tesla, the electric cars that were being charged by gas generators because they <laughs> they were telling they were directly telling oh my uh, gosh California residents not to charge their electric cars right after they banned the sale of new of gas vehicles after 2035. So it's pretty ironic, um, and also <laughs> interesting to see a a Tesla on the highway with a uh, gas generator on the back of a hitchpacker charging the car as it's driving on the highway. Very interesting to see. Um, and I think that they have 
passed through this this crazy crazy event but i mean this stuff will continue to happen with the with the lack of reliability uh, presented by renewables and something that we need to take note of in Texas when we're finding about when we're looking for our energy future. Yeah. Well, I saw that I think it was shared on Twitter and then it found its way into our Slack, which I thought was so funny. Anytime Texans can take a dig at California, they yes. dunk on the opportunity. Oh, yeah. So it's a picture of the Titanic. And it said, what's the difference between California and the Titanic? The Titanic had its lights on when it sank. Ah. Which is pretty funny. I thought that was pretty clever. Um, okay. Well, Rob, you kind of took over Hayden's mic here. We're going to chat with you real fast about some stuff that's happening on the on the global uh, level here. Talk to us about what's going on with the Queen of England. So at this moment, it is 5.41 p.m. in the United Kingdom. And at 6 o'clock, BBC News is expected to start their evening broadcast. Um, the Queen of England is apparently suffering some kind of health condition. Uh, the uh, Royal Palace, Buckingham Palace, put out a statement earlier today saying that the Queen's doctors are concerned for her health and have recommended she remain under medical supervision. She remains quite comfortable at Balmoral Castle, which is uh, her family's castle in Scotland. Apparently, various members of the royal family are traveling to Balmoral Castle as we speak. Um, they are uh, showing up there. Many people um, believe that the queen might basically be dying or Have already, already dead, yeah. to sound a little morbid. Um, there is a protocol in the United Kingdom called Operation London Bridge, uh, which is the protocol for what to do when the queen dies. The BBC uh, will turn off its regular programming, which they have done, and they're expected to announce again at six o'clock uh, the evening news. They will change into black clothing. Uh, which they have also done. And if you check the BBC website right now, their normal red logo has turned black. So the website Ooh. is done up in black. Um, so it is expected by many people that the Queen of England right now, Queen Elizabeth II, is uh, dying or is already dead. And I mean, she has uh, served since World War II. Um, she served in World War II as a mechanic for uh, for cars. I'm sorry, for trucks. Um, she has known every prime minister since Winston Churchill and every president since Harry Truman. My gosh. It's, uh, I've, I've heard it described that uh, she is an institution unto herself, and yeah. it's, it's, it's going to be a different world, essentially. It's, a, it's a, a, a new era, as it were, for the United Kingdom and for the world, since she's still the queen of various Commonwealth countries um, uh, around the world, like uh, areas in... Um, uh, the British Caribbean, uh, Canada, other countries like that, that still have the queen of the United Kingdom as their head of state. Yeah. My gosh. And we'll see, you know, we're recording right now at about noon on Thursday. So who knows what will happen in the next 24 hours. But regardless, it looks um, like something's happening over there and we'll see exactly what that is. But thank you for breaking that down for us. Um certainly someone that I think uh, many people across the world respect greatly. So we'll see what happens. And um, my gosh, it would just be a crazy time if that actually happened. I think you explaining the breadth of her reign and how many folks she's met and worked alongside is just unbelievable. So um, God bless the queen. Okay. I real fast want to um, point to a tweet from 
uh, Abbott's campaign Twitter uh, that I'm a little confused by. And I know Brad specifically loves when I talk about or when anybody talks about rally size as indicators of uh, electoral turnout. But Texans for Greg Abbott tweeted, aware, aware has the Beto magic gone. And it's a side by side photo from 2018 and 2022 um, of two rallies of Beto. And I think he, what he's trying to prove is that the size of the rallies have shrunk, but they're both still a lot of people. So I'm a little confused. Like it, I don't think it has the visual impact that the governor was going for. Um, and even our Matt Stringer, he was at a Beto rally in West Texas this last week. And so the turnout was crazy. I think there's a lot of momentum for, um, the Democratic challenger to Greg Abbott throughout the state of Texas. Um, and I think, you know, there probably could have been a picture of a rally with a few less people that Beto has gone to that could have served as a better visual. I don't know, but it was, a, it was a confusing tweet to me. Am I, am I missing anything, guys, or am I, am I seeing what is going on here correctly? I I can see in the photo that there's less people than the than the uh the amount the big when one. you the big one yeah. in in um 2018. in 2018 when he was running against Cruz but but nevertheless there's still a good amount of people there hundreds of people I mean I don't think it's achieving it it, it kind of caught a lot of flack on Twitter because it just kind of looked like a <laughs> bad way to dunk on Beto yeah it don't definitely again it's like there are fewer people in the other photo but it's still a lot of people I don't know. Yeah. It just didn't it didn't it didn't quite have the impact, I think, that the governor was going for, but who knows? Um yeah, and definitely wanted to plug Matt Stringer and his he has got a great tweet thread if you guys want to go and, and read that as well about Beto's rally over in West Texas. Um okay, gentlemen. Well let's pivot to what we did over Labor Day and talk about any Labor Day fun plans. Hudson, did you do anything outdoorsy over Labor Day? Were you able to do something fun outdoor? No. So actually I had a fantastic Labor Day weekend. Uh I went back into my hometown of San Antonio and it was uh very nice to see a lot of uh my friends that I my my graduating senior uh alumni from Trinity University and my fraternity. A lot of people came into town and so we hit a couple bars. We we spent time at our at our fraternity house, and we hung out with the guys that are still there, and 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 just had had some time together. You know, we spent we spent the whole weekend together. Uh, I think Sunday afternoon we went to Canyon Lake. Oh, beautiful! And oh my we, gosh! We have a really cool spot that we go to there. Totally free to go to um, Overlook Park. If anyone here is interested in going to like spend time by a lake for an afternoon for free. And we brought all our friends uh, and and uh, had a good time. Ultimately, it was a very good, restful Labor Day weekend. And it's always good to see everybody coming into, coming into town from all over the country now. Absolutely. Well, Canyon Lake is so fun, too. That sounds like a great Labor Day oh, weekend. Yeah. And to get out on the water on a long weekend is just so great, especially mm-hmm. this is like the last hot holiday week of the of the year. Yeah. Rob, what did you do? Did you do anything fun? I pretty much uh, stayed in, I'd say, for Labor Day weekend. I didn't really do much. I think I went out on Saturday night, um, had a few drinks, which was a good time. And on Monday itself, I sort of relaxed and read a book. So it was a it was a good weekend for me. Yeah, that I had a sounds good time. amazing. That sounds so amazing. No, I definitely was in the relaxation boat as well. That is so awesome. I um, what did I do? I saw a movie with my roommate, which was so fun. I hung out with my fiance plenty. We hiked with some friends on Monday. We did River Place. 
which is like i don't know hudson if you've been to river place but it's like never the, been to river place it's like the only real hike i'd say in austin i feel like every place else and i've talked about on the pod before is just like nature walks almost like there's just not that much elevation and river yeah river place has definitely got some elevation you kind of hike in and out of a little greenbelt canyon it's nothing crazy but it still gets you get your heart pumping quite quite good so we did that i like did something weird to my back <laughs> it felt like a very a, a much older than i am but it was a fun fun weekend looked at wedding venues did all sorts of errands and productive things and i think it's just a busy season so the more i can just knock things out day by day the better that's that's kind of what i did mm. um bradley you had quite a fun labor day weekend talk to us about what you did I did. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I flew to Boston, uh, saw three games at Fenway Park. Uh, I think it's the second oldest uh, major league park in the country behind Wrigley in Chicago. It's been something I wanted to see for a long time, and uh, it was just a really cool place to watch a baseball game. I went there uh, with my dad and uh, Phil Burton. Shout out, Phil. Thanks for the invite. It was a great, great time. Just hung out with bunch of guys and uh, went to games and saw some uh, some history historical sites my dad and I went to the USS Constitution and the battleship the World War II battleship or not battleship uh, destroyer that is right next to it um, just got to hang out in Boston it was a cool cool opportunity that's amazing I'm so glad you got to go too. that's so fun and the photos were great. Somehow we need to make sure certain um, uh, photos of y'all make it to Twitter. No, they'll never make it to Twitter, but they were pretty fun. Um, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. And folks, thanks for listening, and we will catch you next week. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoy our show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want more of our stories, subscribe to The Texan at thetexan.news. Follow us on social media for the latest in Texas politics and send any questions for our team to our mailbag by DMing us on Twitter or shooting an email to editor at thetexan.news. We are funded entirely by readers and listeners like you. So thank you again for your support. Tune in next week for another episode of our weekly roundup. God bless you and God bless Texas. Where right as I start recording, no, Pancho, no, bad dog. <laughs>